0: Good to be worshiping with you uh, on this Sunday. Uh, As you know, we're going to continue on walking verse by verse through the book of Philippians today. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to Philippians Chapter two. um, As you turn there, got a couple of announcements for you. One really good news for y'all: we do not have to tear down today. We can leave everything set up because Newton County Schools are out all week for Thanksgiving break, and the principal said nobody will be in the building, and we can leave it all set up. Which means that's really good news for today, and it also means that I need you guys back here next week. So if you had plans to miss due to travel Thanksgiving for Sunday, um, cancel those, and just make sure you're here to help tear down. I'm just kidding, Um, but if you are here, we would love your help and uh, and be able to put everything back next week. But no teardown today. Um, also, members of Haynes Creek, um, put this in your calendar uh, December 3rd. So a couple Sundays from now, we're going to have a, a members meeting right after service. This was in your email this week, if you saw that. But um, next couple weeks, uh, go ahead and put that down December 3rd. And that meeting will all uh, be all about our proposed budget for 2024. Um, I know very exciting. I know y'all are all pumped to discuss budget and numbers and finances. I know I enjoy that thoroughly. So uh, make sure you're here for that December 3rd. uh, We will have that budget out to you so you can look over ahead of time and bring your questions uh, to that meeting. Uh, We should have it out this week to you. If not, we will have it by next Sunday. We'll have some hard copies as well to put in your hands. But again, that will be Sunday, December 3rd, right after that service, we'll go into the cafeteria Walk through our budget, answer any questions you have, and then we'll let you know uh, when we're going to have another meeting to vote and, Lord willing, approve that budget uh, before the turn of the calendar. So, um, again, put that in your calendars December 3rd. Um, and like I said, today we're going to continue on in our series through Philippians by looking uh, continuing, looking in depth at verses 5 through 11 of Philippians chapter 2. Uh, before we get started in that, let me pray for us and we'll, we'll jump in. Jesus, we thank you for today, Lord. We thank you. For your love and your grace and your goodness in our lives, Lord, as we we approach this Thanksgiving holiday, Lord, let us be filled with gratitude for who you are and all that you've done for us, Jesus. We pray over our time today, Lord, would you bless this time that we gather together and worship your name and open up your word, Lord. Would you teach us, would you, uh, Lord, pierce our hearts and deepen our love and our faith and our knowledge of you today, Jesus. And we ask all this in your name. Amen. Okay, so like I said, we're going to continue on here in Philippians chapter 2. We're going to finish out our section of 5 through 11 where we're looking really close in zooming in. We're going to finish out verses 10 and 11 today, and then next Sunday, we're going to to zoom back out, right? We've been looking really in-depth and really close up. We're going to zoom back out. We're going to circle back to verse 5, which kicks this entire section off where it says, adopt the same mind or attitude as Christ Jesus, and now knowing what we see here about Jesus, we can now go back to that and go, okay, what does it really look like to have the same attitude or mind as Jesus? So we're going to finish that out. Uh, next Sunday. So like I said, Philippians chapter 2 starting in verse 5. I'll I'll read that in a minute. But uh, most of you guys know uh, we have three kids. So Zayden, uh, don't tell tell him that I told you this because he'll get mad and embarrassed at me. But his birthday is actually next Sunday. So uh, he's going to be turning eight next Sunday. Um, And then we got Livy, who's seven. And then Myla is our two-year-old. And uh, for those with young kids, it's just something that happens around like 18 months or so. I always try to warn like young parents, like, hey, just prepare prepare yourself. A demon enters your child at one and a half and doesn't exit until sometime around four or five. So just prepare yourself. It'll be fine. You'll get through it. But those years are a little tough and it's just, I don't know what it is. It's just this influx of emotions and independence and they're too young to kind of rationalize and think through things and express things and they're just like, I don't know. It's just crazy. That's why they call them the terrible twos and sometimes the threes are worse. It's a good time. It's fun. It's a fun age. I promise you. It's a lot of fun if you're in those years. Hang tight. We were in it with Myla, our third. And something about her that's unique Uh, I don't know if you guys have experienced this with some of your children over the years but she is uh, more opinionated and more independent than the others were at this age and she likes to verbalize that and she loves to just be in charge all the time like she just wants to boss you around I was playing in her room the other day and she's like here dad play with this so I started playing with that toy with her and she's like no 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 not like that do this or you know she doesn't say it that clearly she's like no 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 she'll just say no not that me do that and I'm like okay well you told me to play and now you're bossing me or like she just wants to control and be in charge of every aspect another thing that she does and and I think you know sometimes it's innocent other times I think she knows what she's doing Um, like for example if I'm making her lunch I'll ask you know hey Miley, do you want blueberries and she'll say no no blueberries I'll say, okay, and I'll give her her plate, and then she'll yell at me, where's the blueberries? I need blueberries. I'm like, you just said two seconds ago that you don't want it, and now you're telling me I have to go get you. Like, I think it's partly just her saying, here, dad, jump, and I'll tell you how high to jump, and just, like, her way of controlling things. Maybe I'm looking too deep into that, but she just loves to be in charge. She loves to boss everybody around. I don't know if you guys have experienced that with your kids. Uh, I don't know if, like, maybe you experience that in the workplace, and you're like, oh, I know a toddler. It's just, it hits my boss who loves to be in charge and loves to be, feel like, they just, wear that boss title and just fills them up you guys know who I'm talking about maybe maybe you're even a little bit like that and your spouse is going yeah I know who you're talking about Travis they're right here next to me Uh, don't worry I'll keep that between us it's all good but we we all have these moments where we want to be in charge we want to be the boss of whoever or whatever is going on and we come to Philippians chapter 2 verses 10 and 11 we actually see that that the true boss over everything is not us It's not our children. It's not our earthly boss. It is Jesus ruling over everything. So let's jump into Philippians chapter 2 here, starting in verse 5. Again, we're going to read this whole thing in context here. It says this, starting in verse 5. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant and taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So like I said, we're going to zoom in here on verses 10 and 11, but but as we've been walking through this, we see this progression happening with what we're learning about Jesus, right? Verse 6 tells us that Jesus is fully God, right? He has existed for all of eternity as God, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, right? He is fully God. And then when we see in verse 7, as he comes to earth, as he incarnates to live as a man, he adds to his divinity the, the humanity, right? So he's He's one person, two natures is what we've been saying, fully God, fully man and Jesus is, is born of a virgin, and he lives the perfect life right, that, that, that you and I never could, and then he dies the death on the cross. As Philippians tells us, he becomes the perfect servant, the humble servant who fully obeys God's will and ways, even going to death on the cross. So he lives a perfect life that we never could. He dies the death on the cross in our place And what we saw last week. The story doesn't end with Jesus' death. He is raised again on the third day, and he, he lives on this earth for 40 more days after his resurrection, and then he ascends into heaven where he is exalted to the right hand of God the Father. And that's where we ended last week, and now here in verses 10 and 11, we're we're getting a fuller picture of what it means for Jesus to be exalted to the right hand of the Father right here, right now. So that's what we're going to look at today. If you remember, we're asking ourselves three questions as we go through this. What does this verse or this passage teach us about who Jesus is? What does it teach us about what Jesus has done or is doing or will do for us on our behalf? And and then three, what what does that mean for me living as a Christian right here, right now, right? So that's what we're asking. and We've kind of been going in sequential order throughout that. Like we have, you know, we'll talk about what G- what it tells us about who Jesus is, and we'll talk about what Jesus has done or what he will do, and then it's, we talk about, okay, what does this mean for me? Well, we're going to combine all of those things into our two points today, all right? So um, we're going to look at what verse 10 and 11 teach us about who Jesus is, what he's done, and, and what that means for us. We're going to wrap all those up In our two points. So if you're taking notes, go ahead and write this down. Point number one the first thing that we see about who Jesus is and what he's done or is doing or will do is this Jesus is the reigning Lord. Jesus is the reigning Lord. That's our first point. Jesus is the reigning Lord. Let's look back at verses 10 and 11. It says here, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, there is some future language here, which we'll get into in a second, right? It says that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. That's a future aspect. And we're going to talk about that in our next point. But but notice that what those actions are communicating is it's saying that, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, there's no future part about that. Jesus is Lord. Those future actions are acknowledging a present reality. Let me say that again. Those future actions of every knee bowing, every tongue confessing, they are acknowledging what is true right here, right now, and that is that Jesus is Lord. Not that he will one day become Lord, but that he is Lord right here, right now. And we said this last week, that as Jesus is exalted over everything, that he has, Colossians 1.18, that he has first place in everything. Jesus is supreme and prominent over everything. And now what we're seeing here is not only that he is prominent over everything, but he is actually ruling and reigning over all of creation right now. That's what this means, that Jesus is Lord. That's what this means, that Jesus is the supreme ruler of all of creation. As it says here, uh, uh, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. That, that's Paul's way of saying everything, right? There's, there's no place in creation that Jesus is not Lord reigning over right here, right now. That's what that means, that Jesus is the sovereign ruler of all of creation. When we say that Jesus is Lord, that's the truth that we're proclaiming. He is the sovereign ruler reigning over every aspect of creation right here, right now, in this moment. See, Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 through 11, it's actually quoting and referencing an Old Testament passage found in Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45, verses 22 through 23 says this, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, truth has gone from my mouth, a word that will not be revoked. Every knee will bow to me, every tongue will swear allegiance. Now Paul, or whoever originally wrote this hymn that we see in verses 6 through 11, is referencing that passage. That God says of himself that that there will be a day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And, and Isaiah chapter 45 is a chapter that is all about God's sovereignty. Now when we say sovereignty, what, what we mean is that, that he's in charge of everything. He's the boss of everything. He's the guy that is in charge and ruling over whatever he is sovereign over. And what the Bible tells us is, is God is sovereign over everything. Over everything. And Isaiah 45 confirms that. All throughout this chapter, we see over and over again what we just read, that, that God says, I am God, and there's no other. What he's saying there is there is no one like me. There is no God like me. There's nobody that compares to God. There's nobody that's that's close to or equal or on the same level or a competing alternate force than God. He is God, and there is nothing like him. There is nothing over him, there is nothing equal to him. So we see that he's he there. There's no other. It says in this passage that he rules over all of creation. He rules over kings and nations. That he created everything. That he is the one that provides salvation, and he's the only one that can provide salvation. It also says that, that he's the one that directs the steps of everything in creation, and that includes us. He's over it all. Listen to some of these things that God says about himself in Isaiah 45, starting in verse 6. It says this, So that all may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is no one but me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make success and create disaster. I am the Lord who does all these things. Heavens, sprinkle from above. Let the skies shower righteousness. Let the earth open up so that salvation will sprout and righteousness will spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to the one who argues with his maker, one clay pot among many. Does clay say to the one forming it? what are you making? Or does your work say he has no hands? Woe to the one who says to his father, what are you fathering? Or to his mother, what are you giving birth to? That, that's God's way of saying, you know, when your kid's like, well, why do I have to do that? And you say, because I'm your dad, because I'm your mom. Listen to me. That, that's why, because I'm in charge. That's God's way of saying that. So just like we say that to our kids, this is God telling us, what are you doing questioning me? I'm, a, I'm in charge. I'm God be quiet and just follow me, all right? That's God's way of saying this here. And verse 11, this is what the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and its maker says, ask me what is to happen to my sons and instruct me about the work of my hands. I made the earth and created humans on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I command everything in them. This is who God is. There's no part of that not just in that chapter but in all of scripture where we see anything where God says I'm over everything I direct everything except for that thing over there except for that person over there except for for these things I'm sovereign up to this point there's no part of scripture that tells that what scripture does affirm over and over and over again is that God not only created everything but that he rules over everything He's sovereign over it all, directs the steps of every aspect of his creation. He has full authority over all of it. And what Paul does here in Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, is he says, that God that is doing all of that, that is over all of that, that has all authority, that's Jesus. It's Jesus. Jesus is the one that Isaiah 45 is talking about. Jesus is the one who God the Father acts through, right? We, we see this over and over, the, that who does the creating? It's Jesus. Who did all the creation? It's Jesus. Who does the sustaining? It's Jesus. Who is ruling over everything? It's Jesus. Who is exalted and put above everything? It's Jesus. We see this all over the New Testament. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 says this, Long ago God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. And these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. God has appointed him, heir of all things, and made the universe through him. The universe, y'all. The entire universe was created by Jesus. Verse 3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory in the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So not only did he create the entire universe, He sustains or upholds or keeps the universe functioning as it should. Jesus does that. He is doing that right here, right now. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, so he became superior to the angels, just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus says this in Matthew 28 18. This is one of those moments where Jesus is is on earth after he's been resurrected before he ascends into heaven. This is how he ends things. He says this in Matthew 28 18. Jesus came near and said to them his disciples all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. How much authority church? What's that word say? What was that? All. All authority. Not just some authority. Not just a little bit of authority, not just authority over some things and not other things, all authority. And and maybe I'm wrong on this, but I'm going to take Jesus at his word that when he says all authority, that's what he means. He is over and has authority over everything and everyone. That's what we're seeing here. Peter says this about Jesus in Acts chapter 2. Acts 2, 32 through 36 says, God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now that's quoting from Psalm 110, and we see that over and over again in the New Testament. And what we're seeing there is, is David was proclaiming what we're talking about today. That there is coming a point where Jesus is going to sit down at the right hand of God the Father and, and rule over everything. And Peter's like, man, that, that's that's happening right now. That is right now. That is what we are living in right here, right now. Verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Both Lord, the ruling, uh, sovereign Ruler of everything, king of everything, boss of everything, right? The guy in charge of everything and Messiah, the Savior of all. That's who Jesus is. He is Lord and Messiah. He has all authority. He has all authority. So every time we say that Jesus is Lord, that's the truth that we're proclaiming. That he is the reigning Lord, the ruling authority, the sovereign ruler, the sovereign Lord of of all of creation. And that includes us. That includes us. Every aspect of creation lives under the authority of God. Now we can push back against that authority and try to operate against that authority. Or we can live in line with that authority. Now we as believers are called to live under the authority of Jesus. We're called to live under the authority of Jesus. Now this is a big deal. This is important for us. Because the culture teaches the exact opposite. Right? Our, our secular world that we live in teaches the exact opposite. Or we, we view authority from the cultural standpoint, we view it with a negative lens, right? unless it agrees with us. But, but we're told from a cultural standpoint that, that who has the most authority, who has final say over me and who I am and what I do? Well, it's me. I get to decide that. I have the full authority. I get to decide what I do and who I am and what I want to be and, and all those things. right? I, I get the final say. And if there is some sort of outside authority, well, that's fine as long as it agrees with me and as long as it allows me to do whatever I want to do. The moment an outside authority says, hey, yeah, that, you know, I don't, I don't think you should be doing that. That doesn't seem right. We're going to say that that's wrong. Oh, well, now, now, now you're oppressing me, right? Like that's the language of our current culture. And oppression ha- has turned from what it used to mean, like actually oppressing things, to, to now it's you just tell me something I don't like. You tell me something that I don't like, that I disagree with, that I can't do. Well, now you're oppressing me. Now you're the enemy, and now I have to fight against you. That, that's the cultural world that we're living in right now. I get final say. I have final authority. I'm my own God. And look, that's nothing new, right? We're not living in this moment where we're like, oh, man, didn't see that coming. No, this has been happening since the moment Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. This is what we've been talking about, that that moment where they chose to eat of that tree, they were rejecting God's authority to live under their own authority. They were rejecting following God and saying, you know what, I don't need God, I can become like God and live my own way. This has been happening since Genesis 3. And we just see different forms of it throughout the centuries. So authority is a big deal. Because as believers, again, we are called to live under the authority of Jesus. Why is that? Why? Let me give you three thoughts about why we're to live under the authority of Jesus. One, because that's what it means to follow Jesus. Like, that's what it means to be a Christian, is you follow Jesus. You live under his authority. Romans 10.9 says this. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So we say this all the time around here. Salvation comes to those of us that that put our faith in Jesus, that trust in him for salvation. And part of that is confessing him as Lord, saying that you are Lord, that you are the boss of my life, that you are the ruler of my life, right? We use this language in church that we want to give our lives to Jesus. We want to give our hearts to Jesus. And look, that's a cool thought. That's a beautiful way to say things. But what does it actually mean? It means this, that I'm saying no to myself, no to my desires, no to the way that I want to live life, and I'm going with what you say, Jesus. I'm saying no to myself, and I'm following Jesus. I'm living for you. I'm, I'm giving my life to you. I'm living under your authority. I'm following your ways and not just my own. This is how, how 1 John puts it. 1 John 1, 6-7 says this. If we say we have fellowship with him, we have a relationship with Jesus, and yet we walk in darkness or sin, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And you jump down to 1 John chapter 2, John writes this again, verse 3. This is how we know that we know him. In other words, this is how we know that we're, we're following Jesus, that we're in a relationship with Jesus, if we keep his commands. The one who says, I have come to know him, and yet doesn't keep his commands, is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word truly in him, the love of God is made complete. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked or should live just as Jesus lived. Now this is really important because there's sadly, unfortunately, there's there's a lot of churches out there that are teaching the opposite of that that are saying, you know what, you can have Jesus and whatever lifestyle you want to live, totally fine, doesn't matter. As long as you say you love Jesus, as long as you say you believe in Jesus, that's all that matters. Jesus doesn't actually care how you live your life. And John is telling us the exact opposite. He's saying, no, 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 one of the ways that we know you live for Jesus, and one of the ways that we know that you're saved, one of the ways that we know you have faith in Jesus is because you live like Jesus. It's because you follow Jesus. You follow his ways. You follow his commands. You live under his authority. Right? The Bible doesn't give us room to say, yes, I want Jesus, but I'm still going to live however I want to live. I'm still going to live the life that I want to live. And Jesus, as you have suggestions, sure, send them my way. I'll think about them. You know, I'll, I'll weigh them. You know, I might even give you a little bit more weight than others. But I'm still going to do whatever I want to do. What John just told us is that if that's the way you see things, if that's the way you're living, that you can have Jesus and your lifestyle however you want it, and that Jesus doesn't speak into how you live your life, and you don't really have to follow the Bible, and that when it says, hey, do this, it's more like, hey, if you, if you want to, sure, go ahead. But we see it as suggestions and not commands. Like, if that's you, if that's how we live, John's telling us that we should seriously doubt our salvation, that we should have serious questions about our salvation. And the reality is that we should have that not just with ourselves, but with any uh, self-proclaimed believer. If anybody says, hey, I'm following Jesus, don't really care too much to live like him. Don't really care much about the Bible and what it says and what it doesn't say and all that kind of, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to live my life and kind of have Jesus too. We should have serious questions about that person's salvation. If that's us, we should have serious questions about our salvation. That's what we're being told here. We are called and commanded to live under the authority of Jesus. Again, that's what it means to follow him. The second reason why we're to live under his authority is we are to extend that authority over all of creation. All right, that we're to extend that authority over all of creation. The Bible talks often about the kingdom of God. Right? You've heard that phrase before the kingdom of God, even the Lord's Prayer, like your, your, your kingdom come, right? On earth as it is in heaven, all that kind of good stuff. We, we hear this phrase, kingdom of God. Jesus talked a lot about the kingdom of God. Well, what does that mean? But simply put, the the kingdom of God is God's rule and reign. It's God's rule and reign. And anything that comes in line with God's rule and reign, with his ways, that's the kingdom. That's the kingdom. So Jesus says when you put your faith in him, you come into the kingdom of God. You're, You're living under his kingdom. And you are to live under his rule and reign and extend his rule and reign on this earth. So here's what this means. This is going back to how God created us. Right? I'm going to try to summarize this quickly because we can't camp out here too long. But this was part of our original design. When God created man and woman, when he created Adam and Eve, he said, I, I'm giving you dominion over all of creation. Well, what did that mean? Did that, that mean you just go do whatever you want to do? No, it meant, hey, you're living under my authority, and I want you to extend that authority over all of creation. Bring every part of creation under the rule and reign of God, under the kingdom of God. But as we know, Adam and Eve sinned. They, they left the kingdom of God. They left the authority. They left the rule and reign of God and stepped into the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of sin, the kingdom of rejecting God's rule and reign for their own. And now we live under this kingdom of darkness, this kingdom of sin. And when we put our faith in Jesus, we come back into his kingdom. Colossians one thirteen says that we, we are taken out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his Son. That's what salvation is. So now we come back under the authority, the rule and reign of Jesus, and we are to extend that rule and reign. One, by living for him right? We extend the kingdom of God by living for Jesus. That's what every single parable that Jesus tells is about. When Jesus says, hey, the kingdom of God is like this, it's always something about how we're to live in this world as Jesus wants. That's how we extend the kingdom. We live for Jesus. We reflect Jesus to everyone and everything around us. We display Jesus, and we also do it by proclaiming the gospel, We also do it by telling people about Jesus and calling them to come back to that kingdom, back to our original design and purpose, back to living under the authority of God. When we call people to repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus, that's what we're doing. We are extending the kingdom of God. And God has called us to do that. He's invited us into his work of extending his rule and reign all across this creation. That's what it means to evangelize. That's what it means to spread the gospel, to tell people about Jesus. That's what we're doing. We're expanding the kingdom of God. The last thing about living under the authority of Jesus is we live under the authority of Jesus because we've been given part of Jesus' authority. Like, this is one of these crazy things about our salvation is we are actually given his authority. Right? Remember, there's two kingdoms, right? There's the kingdom of God, and there's the kingdom of sin and darkness. And as God's kingdom, we are to wage war against the kingdom of darkness and sin. And the only way we're able to do that is with the authority of Jesus. The only way we can fight temptation and sin and combat the works of Satan is through the authority of Jesus. And this is the, like I said, this is the cool thing about becoming a Christian, putting your faith in Jesus, is he gives you some of that authority. He gives you some of his authority to go and do that, right? He doesn't just leave you out on your own. It's not like, hey, thanks for putting your faith in me. Good luck with life. You know, call me if you need me. But if I'm busy, sorry, good luck. No, he gives us his authority to follow him, to walk in righteousness. This is what Ephesians 2.6 says. It says, he also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. Now, if you know anything about Ephesians chapter 2, it's all about putting our faith in Jesus, putting, uh, coming under his kingdom, right, being saved. That's what this whole thing is about. He talks about us being made alive and, and repenting of our sins and putting our faith in him. And it's not of our own works. It's trusting in Jesus. Well, another part of our salvation is that he raises us up with him and seats us next to him. That's our present reality, church. We don't fully realize that until Jesus comes back, which we'll talk about in a second. But that's our present reality. We are currently right now sitting with Jesus in heaven in some sense. He's giving us some of his authority. That's what Paul writes later in Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. It says, Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in heaven. You, you skip to 2 Corinthians ten three through 4. It says this, For although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. Since the weapons of our warf- warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds, we demolish arguments. God has given us his authority so that we can fight against the powers of this world, so that we can fight against the schemes of Satan, so that we can fight against the darkness, so that we can fight against Sin. We are not weak. We are strong in Jesus. We can fight against the works of the devil, not in our own strength, but through the strength and the victory of Jesus. One of the things that drives me crazy, you see, watch any movie about, like, demon possession, not to mention the just, like, widely inaccurate views of Scripture that it portrays. But one of the things that that drives me crazy is any, like, priest or pastor or Christian in those kind of movies— is like automatically terrified of Satan. It's like, oh, you're too powerful, you're too, and it's like, that's not at all what the Bible tells us. It tells us that the demons are scared of the name of Jesus. The demons are scared of the work of Jesus. The demons are scared because Jesus has already won the victory. He's already defeated them. They are powerless against him, and when we encounter the works of Satan, when we encounter sin and temptation in our lives and in this world, we don't go in there weak. We don't go in there empty-handed. We go in there with the strength and the victory and the authority of Jesus Christ. We should not walk in fear. We should not live in fear. We live in the strength of Jesus. That's why we live under the authority of Jesus. He's called us to. He's invited us to, and he's given his authority to do just that. Okay, so the first thing we see here is Jesus is the reigning Lord. He is sovereign ruler over everything, has all full authority over not just our lives, but every aspect of creation, right? The second thing we see here is that Jesus is the returning king. Jesus is the returning king. Look again at verses 10 through 11. So to the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this is where we, we start to get into that future language that's listed here. So we see that Jesus already is Lord, right? He already is ruling. He already has defeated the enemies and the works of Satan, but we're left with this question, right? But, but there's still evil and wickedness in the world. Like, what's going on with that? There's still evil. There's still sin. There's still darkness. I still struggle with sin and temptation, just like you still struggle with sin and temptation. Like, what's, what's going on here? There's still people all throughout the world living in opposition and against the authority of Jesus, so there's this there's this present reality that, that Jesus has already done these things, that some of these things are already completed in one sense, and yet they're not yet fully consummated. They're, they're not yet finalized. The, the technical term of that for you theology nerds out there like myself is inaugurated eschatology. So that's what that means. Inaugurated eschatology in just simple terms. what it, If you've heard the phrase already, not yet, that's what that's teaching. So Jesus has already, already defeated Satan and evil and death and all of those things. He's already done it through his life, death, and resurrection. But it's not yet finalized. It's not yet consummated. That will wait until Jesus returns. So there's an aspect that it's already finished, already done, but not yet fully realized, not yet fully complete. And what this Passages reminding us of is that, that that one day that Jesus comes back, man, that that one day is going to finalize all of this. One day, Jesus will return, and that day, he will complete his rule and reign, and on that day, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess the present reality of Jesus is Lord. Now, look, there's there's a lot of thoughts, there's a lot of opinions, and there's a lot of disagreements about Jesus's return. And we all love talking about it, right? Like, I I was hanging out with one of our neighbors, and I just kind of recently met this guy, and he's, he knows that I'm a pastor. He's a believer as well. And one of the first conversations we had, guess what the first thing he asked me? What are your thoughts on the end times? I'm like, oh boy, here we go. Here we go. I just lost another friend. This will be great. Um, because we all have these like really strong opinions about stuff that we don't necessarily know with full clarity so there's a lot of questions there's a lot of intrigue you know what, who's the antichrist going to be what is that even uh, when jesus comes back is there a rapture is there not a rapture is the rapture pre-trib mid-trib post-trib the tribulation is there tribulation and then there's a great tribulation is you know jesus comes with the millennium is it is it premillennial is it postmillennial is it amillennial those weirdos that believe that like me like what's going on here right like what what is up with the return of jesus we got no shortage of questions i mean the, this stuff is going on in israel as wicked and as awful as it is it has provoked all of the people to come out and be like oh this is what this this means. Here's the fulfillment of all these things. I mean, I've been seeing books put out about this stuff, and I'm like, hold up man, We're not even like, we're just at the beginning stages of what's going on. You're already putting books out about what this means according to the end times prophecies and things like that. I'm like, what are we doing here? What is going on, man? Like, you can Google right now. I don't do this, actually, because I don't trust what you're going to find. But you can find no shortage of sermons out there right now by churches and pastors talking about whatever's going on in Israel and what that means in terms of end times prophecy and fulfillment. And look, maybe they're right. Maybe they're wrong. There's a lot that we don't know. And we have to acknowledge that. There's a lot of uncertainty when it comes to the end times and the return of Jesus and what all that means. So I'm, I'm not going to get into that. I Again, mean, if you want to talk through that, I love that stuff. I nerd out on it. A lot of fun for me. You might not like where I land on things, and I might not like where you land on things, but here's the thing. That's all open-handed and good people that love Jesus. We can disagree with that and still have fellowship with one another, or, or at least we should, right? Here are some things that we know for sure will happen when Jesus comes back. I want to center us on, on that for the rest of our time here. So when Jesus returns, one of the things we know he will do is he will fully and finally defeat all all sin, all evil, all death. Right? We see that he's we, parts about he's already done some of that. He's going to fully do it when he comes back. We saw a lot of 1 Corinthians 15 last week. Let me read two more verses from there. It says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 25 through 26. It says, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. What this reminds us of when Jesus comes back, he is putting an end to death. When he returns, death will be no more. There'll be no more decaying, no more death, none of that. It's going to be gone. Jesus will end it all. And he will also defeat all sin and evil. I love I love this image in Revelation chapter 19 that talks about when Jesus returns and, and how he battles sin and evil and wickedness for the final defeat of all that. I love how it describes. Let me just... I just got to read most of this. All right, y'all just bear with me here. It's really good stuff. So Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. It says this about the return of Jesus. Then I saw heaven opened and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and with justice he reigns and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. He has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. Y'all, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. And that is in stark contrast to the 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 blonde flowing hair bearded versions of jesus that we see painted all throughout the centuries right like i want somebody to paint this version of jesus with the tattoo lord of lords and king of kings on his thigh with a sword coming out of his mouth like that would be awesome that's who jesus is that's jesus and here's what happens when he returns verse 17 then i saw an angel standing in the sun and he called out in a loud voice saying to all the birds flying overhead Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of military commanders, the flesh of the mighty, the flesh of horses and of their riders, and the flesh of everyone, both free and slave, small and great. Sounds wild, man. Verse 19. And then I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and against his army. But the beast was taken prisoner, and along with it, the false prophet who had performed the signs in its presence. He deceived those who accepted the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image with these signs. Both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of the rider of the horse, and all the birds ate their fill of their flesh. So, When Jesus returns and all of evil gathers to battle Jesus, like we got the beast and whatever that means, and there's lots of thoughts on that. The false prophet, again, lots of thoughts on that. At its base level, that is a a manifestation of, of Satan's power and evil and sin and wickedness on this earth. So you got, you got that, you got the armies of the world, everybody who's living in, in utter opposition to Jesus coming. The, the picture of it is this, this coming war where they're lining up with all their might and all their strength ready to battle Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Is there even a war? No. No. He wipes them out with that sword coming out of his mouth just like that. Just like that. It's, it's over. It, like Before they're even done gathering and starting the battle, Jesus is like, nah, I'm done. Y'all are finished. And they're just, they're wiped out. They're wiped out like that's Jesus. Doesn't even break a sweat against the entire might of evil and wickedness that invades this world. Jesus wipes it out in an instant. That's who our God is. And that's what he will do when he returns. Y'all know about you, but that is awesome. Like we can know and have confidence that our God wins the day. It's not even a struggle. It's not a battle. It's not like, oh man, we might lose this. No. He doesn't even break a sweat and it's over in an instant. That's what Jesus will do to sin and evil and death. He defeats it all when he comes back. Another thing we know that he will do is he will judge. He will take his place on the throne as the great judge. We see this in Revelation 20. Starting verse 11, it says this, "'Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence, and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each one was judged according to their works.'" Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So one of the things we know, we see this even in Matthew 25 with the parable that Jesus tells of the sheep and the goats, when he comes back, he will judge. And he will separate the unrighteous from the righteous. The righteous onto eternal life with him and the, the unrighteous into eternal torment in hell, separated from God forever when Jesus comes back, we will all stand in judgment. And on that day, we know Philippians 2, 10 through 11 will come true. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess as we stand before God, Jesus, the righteous judge. Another thing that happens, we talked about this last week, with the glorification of the saints. We know that when Jesus comes back, whether we're dead or alive with him, we are going to be transformed and given glorified bodies. Again, we don't know what that means, but I can tell you, it's going to be awesome. All right, It's going to be amazing. It's going to be great. We talked about that last week, so I won't get into that. Another thing that we know for sure is that when Jesus comes back, he will bring with him the new heavens and the new earth. Theologians also refer to this as the eternal state. So this is what Revelation 21 says about that. Verses 1 through 4 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. So what that tells us is that we will spend eternity on a new heaven and a new earth, perfected heaven and earth. So, look, eternal life with Jesus is not in some far-off heavenly realm, this spiritual realm where we're not. We're just kind of like these spirits floating around, angels with wings, that kind of thing that we see often depicted throughout the centuries. That, 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 that's not our eternal state and our eternal promise. Our promise is that we will live for all of eternity in physical, glorified bodies on a perfected creation, a perfected earth a new heaven a new earth dwelling in the full presence of god where there's no more suffering no more pain no more sadness no more evil right that's that's what our promise is that's what we have promised to us with the new heavens and new earth so we we know for sure that those things are going to happen in what order and how that all works out, that's where it, it's up to us to kind of debate and have some thoughts and have some fun with it. But, but we know for sure that's going to happen. Now, now, what does that mean for us? Where's the good news for us about this truth that, that it, Jesus is the returning King, that one day he will come back? Well, one, it brings us hope. It brings us hope. There, there is no shortage of brokenness in this world, there's no shortage of, of evil and pain. And suffering, I mean, you can go back to the Middle East, and I mean, you want to talk about what's going on there, but we can see that for sure. We know for sure that, I man, that is just another manifestation of all the evil and brokenness and suffering that we see on and on and on in this world. I mean, even in, in our own lives, the, the pain and the suffering and the hardships and the disappointments that we go through on a regular basis, there's no shortage of that. But, but we, we can know for certain that, that one day that won't be the case anymore one day all that's wrong in this world Jesus is going to make right and y'all that that should and can and does bring us hope that no matter how bad things look and how bad things get we know what Jesus is going to do about that we know that he will put an end to all of that one day all of the brokenness all of the sin all the evil all of our pain all of our sadness all of our hardships will be put to an end and all will be made right. Another reason why this is good news is that it reminds us that we have the promise of eternal life with Jesus in complete perfection. All right, so whatever may go wrong in this life, whatever may go wrong in your life or my life, Whatever disappointments we face, whatever things that, that man, we're like, man, I just, I just wish that this was different. I just wish that this, this thing played out differently. All of those disappointments in life, all those things that, that we think go wrong or may not work out for us, we know that no matter how bad things may get here, that one day we're going to spend eternity in complete perfection with Jesus. I mean, that, that should give us something to look forward to. It should because uh, the Bible often talks about our life being a a mist or a vapor. And when you compare however long we live here, however short or however may long we may live on this earth, we know that compared to eternity, it's, it's like that. It's like nothing. So we can face the hardships of this life because we have something to look forward to. And, you all isn't it nice to have something to look forward to? Like, we all kind of feel that way, whether it's, you know, an upcoming vacation or some event that you have going on that you're like, man, you circle it on the calendar. And like ah, I'm looking forward to counting down the days for that. I told you my son's birthday is coming up next week. Well, a few, a couple weeks ago, he, he started his own birthday calendar. He wrote it down on a sheet of paper, like with the days up until his birthday, and he's, he's been crossing it off each day because he's looking forward to his birthday you know he's still at that age where birthdays are exciting when you get past a certain age I don't know what point that is but you're just like man it's just another day and it's just another reminder of how old I am right like so but he's still looking forward to it he still thinks it's exciting and awesome and I love that and my kids love Christmas so they're already like excited about Christmas Livy said the other day she's like man I just wish we could fast forward to Christmas I just wish we could skip ahead to Christmas is what she said I'm like man I, I get it I get it. there's something to look forward to it's nice to have something to look forward to Well, y'all, we have the ultimate thing to look forward to, complete perfection in the new heavens and new earth. We have that to always fix our eyes on, fix our gaze to, look forward to that. And that can get us through the dark days. That can get us through the hard moments that life brings because we have that promise to us. That is a guarantee that we can hold tightly to. And then lastly, the last thing that's good news for us is, is judgment. Judgment, let me explain why that's good news for us who have put our faith in jesus we we know that judgment is going to happen hebrews 9 27 affirms this, where it says and just as it is appointed for people to die once and after this judgment judgment that is one thing that we know for sure will happen is one day we will stand in judgment before god again let's go back to revelation 20 where jesus is the one who judges he says this, and again, let me read in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and, and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence, and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. So at the end when Jesus takes his seat on his great white throne of judgment and we all stand before him books are going to be open and one of those books is our book and as Revelation 20 tells us here is it's a book of all of our deeds all of our works everything that we've done in life and we, we are judged according to what is said in that book we're judged according to what is in that book, according to our deeds. But here's the good news. That's not the only book that's opened. There's another book, the book of life. The book of life, and, and, and that's the book of salvation. And the names that are found in the book of life, that who is who is saved. That is who goes on to eternity in complete perfection with Jesus. And look, getting into that book, having your name put in that book, only comes through faith in Jesus. It only comes through faith in Him. Look, the truth is, our books, when they're open, the books of of our deeds, I don't know about you, but mine's gonna be pretty messy. Mine's gonna be pretty messy. It's gonna have a lot of sin, it's gonna have a lot of failures, it's gonna have a lot of mistakes, regrets, shame. Things that, man, if I could go back and do or say it differently, I I would. It's gonna be filled with that. And and if I'm left to be judged by my deeds and my works, we've been talking about this for a couple weeks, I'm, I'm not gonna measure up. I'm not gonna make it. Because my deeds and my works always lead to condemnation if it's just my book that's being opened and, and my deeds that are being read and my deeds that are being judged, the, the sentence is the lake of fire. The sentence is hell and separation from God for all of eternity. But for those who have put our faith in Jesus, our books are messy, but they're messy with the blood of Christ. They're messy with the blood of Of Jesus, because our names are found in the book of life, and and what that means is is the book of life goes back to, to our books, and all of the sin and all of the failures is crossed out, and it's written forgiven over. All those things that we regret, all that shame, all those things that we wish we could go back and do differently are erased and wiped clean with the blood of Jesus. Because for believers, that's why this is good news, y'all, for believers who have put our faith in Jesus, we're not judged according to our deeds or our works. We're judged according to Jesus's, and he's perfect, and he gives us his perfection. He gives us his righteousness, and that's why we can proclaim the truth of Romans 8:1: that therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that day of judgment for us is a day that we can look forward to, church, because it is going to be such a great and beautiful reminder for what Jesus has done for us. That all those things that we've done wrong, all those things in life that we've messed up on are scratched out, are blotted out, are wiped clean, are erased for all of eternity with the blood and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. It'll be a beautiful reminder of the love and grace and mercy of Jesus. That's why we can look forward to that day. That's why judgment for us who have put our faith in Jesus is good news. The reality is that we will all die. And if Jesus comes back before then either way, we are all going to stand before Jesus. And these books are going to be open. And on that day, every single person who's ever lived is going to proclaim the truth of Philippians 2 10 through 11, that Jesus Christ is Lord, and they will bow their knee and they will confess that truth. The question is are we going to confess that before the day of judgment? Are we going to confess that in this life? Are we going to put our faith in Jesus in this life and not be judged according to our deeds, but according to Jesus's? That's the question. That day is coming for all of us. And we need to ask ourselves. On that day, what am I going to say? What am I going to say to Jesus? Why, why should it, he let me into his kingdom? Why should he let me into the perfection of the new heavens and new earth? And if it is, has anything to do with me, if it has anything to do with my good deeds or, or my hard work and, and good effort, I have no hope on that day. I have no hope. So my my call to you today is is if you're here and you're uncertain about that, or you you know, man, I've never done that. I've never put my faith in Jesus. I'm going to call you today. Let today be the day of your salvation. Let today be the day that your name is written down in the book of life, that your sin and your mistakes and your failures and your shame is blotted out by the blood of Jesus. Let today be that day. And again, we, we say this all the time. That, that, that all that means is is putting your trust and your faith in Jesus, saying that that I trust you to save me, Jesus. I trust in your works and not my own. And we give our lives to Him. And if you're here and you're a believer, I hope my hope and prayer is that that this would be an encouragement to you. That this would be yet again another reminder of the grace of Jesus. That if it were not for Him we have no hope but because of jesus we have forgiveness we have grace we have mercy we have the promise of eternal life with him believer that should fill our heart with gratitude that should fill our heart with praise and worship and that should all the more encourage us to live and follow him in this life so in a moment i'm going to pray we're going to step into a time of communion, and, and we do this every single Sunday, and this is a time for us just to, uh, to remember and celebrate exactly what we've been talking about, the, the, the sacrifice and the salvation of Jesus. So, believer in the room, spend some time preparing your hearts, and a- as you're ready, you go to the table on either side, you, you take the cup, you eat, and you drink, and, and you remember and celebrate the work of Jesus, that, that he lived for you, that he died for you, that, that he was raised for us let's worship him for the salvation that he alone provides let me pray for us jesus i thank you lord for your salvation i thank you lord for what you've done for us and lord as we we've spent these few weeks just digging deep into who you are and what you've done or or will do or are doing jesus i I pray that it's filled our heart with a deeper love and affection for you I pray that it's, it's encouraged us to live for you all the more, Jesus, that you are the only one deserving of full allegiance. Lord, you are the only one deserving of our faith and our trust. You're the only one deserving of our life, Lord. So I pray for those of us that are believers in here, Lord, would we go forward with this deeper love and knowledge of you lord would we live all the more for you lord would we display your grace and your mercy and your love all the more to the world around us would we proclaim your truth to those around us all the more jesus you're the only one that gives us hope you're the only one that promises us life that gives us an answer to the brokenness and the pain and the suffering in this world jesus I Pray for those that, that are here or may one day listen to this, Lord, that, that don't know you. Lord, would you, would you save and rescue them as only you can do? As we read in Isaiah 45, Lord, salvation belongs to you. You are the one that saves. Lord, would you do that? Would you lead those that have not yet, lead them to put their faith and trust in you, Lord? Would you grant them salvation? Lord? you come them to you Jesus as only you can Lord. And we pray all of this in your beautiful and wonderful name. Amen.